Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favourite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish-tech-news. This week on The Futurists, Sophie Wade. For me, the great resignation, the biggest piece of that is a mindset shift about work and the changing attitude to work and what work means and the role it has in my life. Welcome back. You're listening to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik. And my co-host, King. Brett King. Hi, Brett. Welcome back, you world traveler. You're battling uh-huh. the storms there in North Carolina now. Yeah, I, I am. It's a bit wet here in North Carolina today, but it's, I'm glad to be home for a few days. I head off again on Sunday. So, um, yeah. Just in town long enough to get a bucket full of that climate change. And, 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 and so Yeah, exactly. And get some shirts cleaned and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Now, um, this week, our guest is is Sophie Wade, longtime friend of mine, personal colleague, and an expert in the future workforce. But before we jump into that, Brett, have you got some news items to share? I do indeed. So um, one of the first pieces of news, which is quite interesting, we've been talking about uh, food scarcity and food production and things like that. And um, the FDA has approved the first lab-grown meat company for prime time. So um, lab-grown proteins or synth meat, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know what we're going to call it. Um, you know, uh, the synthetic synthetic uh, uh, meat, it, it could be an interesting one. Quality-free um, meat. <laughs> Yes, that's absolutely, you know, a much better um, design for from a perspective of um, you know climate and so forth in respect to that. Um, of course, the other news is as a result of the uh, collapse of Block FI or the uh, Chapter 11 process for Block FI and, um, of course, our friends at FTX, um, that this is having some flow-on effects. And so yeah. just on the humorous side, one of the side effects of this is that um, we hear that a number of Miami uh, nightclubs may be going under because they don't have the crypto bros paying for all of the... Uh, <coughs> the alcohol anymore but uh, there you go just mm-hmm. some, some, new, some some new some humorous news on, half, on and half front, the but... sports stadiums in the united states have to rebrand exactly so, <laughs> yes um sorry but i don't have much sympathy for the coin bros <laughs> out there i'm sorry it's hard to summon for me but we will be going into um ftx and the whole crypto contagion uh discussion in a future episode so if you're interested in that topic we're definitely going to cover it but this week we've got a dear friend Longtime colleague and an expert on workforce innovation. Uh, her name is Sophie Wade. Sophie, welcome to the Futurists. It's delightful to be here. Um, good to see you again, Rob, and very nice to meet you, Brett. Nice to meet you. So, Sophie, you have been uh, a workforce futurist for some time. Although, uh, as we were just saying, that term isn't really doesn't really resonate necessarily with your client base because people don't know what the future of the workforce should be or what they should be concerned about. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, what is it that you actually do and how do you help companies? Uh, So I, it was actually somebody else who gave me the title of work futurist, which I then accepted because what I realized I was doing was looking at the trends and just talking about the trends and helping people understand where we were going so that they could adapt because it's not 
there, there's a, so much that is changing that, that that needed some facilitation. But it's really looking at the trends. It's not there's there's nothing challenging about it really. It, but it is p- taking a lot of time and energy to really understand what that means and synthesize what a lot of those trends are. Because I my first book I wrote in 2017, and I was looking at the trends then and projecting out, and that's basically where we are. So. It wasn't. It was. It was really. I started off in 2011 in workplace flexibility, and at that point, I was trying to say, "Hey, look, we can be working in a different way. We can be working much more flexibly. We have the technologies now." So that was trying to sort of pull the future forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess then I sort of moved into talking about and advocating for and helping people understand what was coming. So sort now of, that's, oh, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good way to start the show today because uh, this, t- this concept that the workforce is changing because the workplace is changing and the tools that we have are changing. So when you started Flexel Network, is that the mission? Is that the vision of it is to help companies adapt to ever-changing circumstances and bring their employees along with them? Yes, driven by technology. The mm-hmm. at that time there wasn't this umbrella term, the future of work. That's why I, I saw that in 2015. So it really was saying, well, hang on a second. There is this ability. People already were working flexibly. It was much more informal. People were teleworking and telecommuting, and that was the, that was the terminology. Um, and it was something that I wanted to do more of because I have two kids, and so I, I wanted more flexibility. And then you sort of look at what well, is the technology that's affording us that ability to work in in different ways, more flexibly, be working in places and time at times that make sense, also because of traffic and commuting and all those type of things. And so it was really it was was advocating for it. And the, at the beginning, I was trying to match up companies with uh, people who wanted more flexible jobs, which was originally, you know, helping more women. But then, you know, when I'm looking at it, kind of like everybody wants to work flexibly, everybody, you know, should have the right for that. It's not just women and, you know, who are, you know, caregivers, you know, most, a lot of the time for kids and for, for parents, elderly parents. So that's where it, it started. Then in 2015, I saw this thing called the future work. I was like, Ooh, that's, that's a bigger thing. Workplace flexibility is is a core piece of it. But I, I saw how challenging that was going to be. And you mean challenging for the companies that you consult to, because uh, yes. for the workers, it's great. Of course, everybody wants more flexibility. Of course, people don't want to sit in a car and, and commute if they don't need to. Uh, but what I've heard from the companies that I work with is uh, managers are getting very frustrated with remote work, and they want to see employees at their desks every single day. And there's a great deal of resistance towards that now. Huge resistance. Yeah. yeah the, so- I mean, the pandemic sort of showed us that you don't have to work in an office, but there are benefits to, you know, sort of collaboration in person. But, um, you know, it, it, is, is this more of a permanent change, do you think, Sophie? Sorry, I, I know Robert mm-hmm. asked you, you know, something previously before as well, but, you know, it's all so- good. Yeah. So the future of work isn't just about workplace flexibility and and working from home or working from somewhere else. Um, And I do typically focus on workplace flexibility because flexibility for fixed site, on location, shop floor uh, workers is just as important as it is for knowledge workers who can be working, you know, from home where, where fixed site workers can't. So, you know, it is something that Peter Drucker in the 1950s talked about, the knowledge economy and knowledge workers need more autonomy. Human beings need more autonomy to be able to do their best work. So that's where that piece of it is focused on. But the future of work is really new working environments new and new business uh, 
operational means and different dark marketplace de- developments driven by technology. Now there is some societal change, which is which has uh, gone along in parallel and helped uh, help the momentum of the future of work. Insofar as uh, we have many different you know family setups, we have people who are retiring later and uh, needing not to uh, leave the workforce completely. Um, and maybe sort of phase out rather than just, you know, drop out and retire going from 100% to zero. Um, we have families that, ha- you know, we have 40% of families where the, uh, the woman is the prime or the sole, the mother is the, the prime or the, or the um, sole breadwinner. So we have more complex societies where more flexibility is necessary in order yeah, to sort of, sort of yeah. uh, reduce friction. So, but, but management hasn't changed. The management structure hasn't changed, and, and I'd argue that corporations haven't changed. And we've, yeah. in other words, the society is changing, as you described. Technology is making it possible for people to pick and choose when and how they work. <laughs> um, but the, the way the companies are set up, they still expect people to show up and sit. The tools, cube. the way they measure KPIs and performance, or, or a lot of this is sort of ingrained based around that office structure, right? Yes, and yet there are lots of companies that have moved. On and they've been using. I mean, a lot of my clients over the last uh, pre-pandemic, but but since then too, um, have been pioneering software companies, for example, who are who ha- have been developing and you know seeding in the marketplace future work facilitating platforms. For example, um, I did a lot of work for Workfront, which is a workflow management. They called it pro- project management tools, but it was work. Now they call it workflow management. It was bought by Adobe. So when you understand how you're working, you can work from anywhere. And in fact, the companies that were using their software were able to pivot very easily during the pandemic because they actually understood exactly how they were working. And then they could they could pivot quickly and and uh, you know use the cloud. Understood like what handoffs were going between whom. So the more that we understand how we're working and who's working and where they're working, you know, working from anywhere and doing things slightly differently and focusing on different things is much much easier to do. Because what the integration of so much more technology, which was uh, catalyzed by the pandemic, means that the nature of business and particularly the nature of work is very, very different. It's much more unpredictable. It is no longer uh, a lot of independent, singular, static, predictable KPIs that you can project out, you know, and and business plans you can project out ten years or five years. Like like that does not exist in the in the same way at all. The nature of work itself is much more networked, uh, much uh, you know closer horizons. Having to work, doing a lot more teamwork. The HBR twenty twenty November December twenty twenty one issue said the project economy has arrived, um, and what that means is people working on non routine work. So the increase in non routine work over the last twenty years has been extraordinary, and. Also to do with the fact that that we've automated a lot of the really boring stuff away, and now we have to focus on much more complex work, which means that we're needing to work together and really be collaborating uh, in a very, very different way that we never had to before. So mm-hmm. there's so many aspects to it which has, have made work more interesting for for in many ways, but also more complex and much more reliant on how we interact as people. And that's why I've sort of done a lot of my work is focused on empathy because it's really about understanding each other. 
That's important for management in particular, uh, that yes. ability to empathize and understand. Now, let me let me zero in on things. You did cover a lot there. I want to zero in on one thing that you mentioned because I think it's a big theme for our show, mm-hmm. which is automation, software automation, workforce mm-hmm. automation, uh, and robotics. Yeah, I want to get into this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. you know, this, this is a big topic. It keeps coming up. We've talked to roboticists. We'll have more on the show. We've talked to people who are focused on artificial intelligence. These things are viewed as vaguely threatening uh, to workers. Uh, though, you know, in some perspectives, they can be superpowers for workers as well. And one thing that's certainly true is the more automation we do, the more it does affect the jobs that are left for humans to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I'm bringing all this up because I'm responding to what you just said. Uh, you know, the, the story of the past, let's say, 70 years um, of uh, scaling multinational corporations and globalization like post-World War II or post the uh, you know 1970s, if you will, uh, has been about atomizing jobs. So turning jobs into breaking them down and breaking the task down mm-hmm. into smaller, um, more simple and more repeatable processes. And that's been, that's made it possible to employ people, but it's also been made it possible to outsource the jobs and offshore the jobs. And more recently, it's made it possible to automate those jobs. Uh, the more you can break a job down, uh, you know, make it simple and repeatable, um, uh, the more easy it is to have a machine eventually do that job or to move that job someplace else. Are you saying now there's a trend against that or away from that? Or are you saying that we've automated so much, we have such great automation capabilities now that we simply don't even need to do those jobs? Uh, now now workers will need to what, learn new skills, adapt to new positions. Tell me a little bit about the implications of automation for workers. Sure. So I think it was 2018 or 2019, there was a very interesting McKinsey report, which said that for 60% of jobs, of 60% of jobs, 30% of those jobs were automated, automatable away. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't only 15% of, of total jobs were automated, uh, automatable away to, you know, completely disappear. So that's, you know, a significant number, but it's, it's not that big in comparison to all of them. What it, what the, this percentage of and the majority of jobs meant that jobs were changing. So they weren't they weren't disappearing, but they were changing. And so this is where we, you know, the World Economic Forum talks about the fact that, you know, 50% of the workforce needs to be reskilled by 20 by 2035 or something. Correct. So it's a lot to do with skills, the skills that we're using to do our jobs and, and what's necessary. What you do see, for example, in there was a Wall Street Journal article in 2019, which was talking about the graduating class of 2019, and that because a lot of the really simple grunt work has been automated away, let's say in knowledge work, that people coming in, the new entrants into the labor market were coming in at jobs that were three to four years more sophisticated than what they were needing to do than previously, previous generations. So it is changing very much the complexity of the work that is left. So the really simple, boring, you know, death, horrible jobs, a lot of that has been automated by machines. What is left is more uh, complex, integrated, team-based project work. We still, we have, you know, looking at the stats, there aren't fewer jobs available. There are more jobs available. We have, you know, many more jobs available than we we have people. And talking to someone, uh, uh, Trond Undheim, who's talking about flexibility in the work in, um, in fixed size on, on, on the shop floor, 
He said, we're missing 2 million factory workers that we need. So the automated, automation there, absolutely. In fact, the automation for a lot of, most of the research money, the R&D money that's gone into automation has been focused on speed and quality. It hasn't actually been on the process side of things, which is where much more uh, computer power could really facilitate uh, improvements for let's say factory workers jobs as and and the interest that they have and the the, the capabilities and the output that they can actually produce so it's okay, changing so, so, jobs not not taking them away right i understand that um but i think what we, what you just said is really telling it's um the the focus on automation has been to focus as you mentioned on speed and efficiency that's for sure true and cranking up the tempo right we've mm-hmm. heard that right reports of work productivity right? is the economic term right well, yeah, that's what they say, but but there's some question about whether this does ultimately lead to more productivity or whether it creates more problems. And it's worth, uh, for instance, in Amazon's warehouses, right? We've heard of people are driven like machines and they're kept to this clock and they've got this- Human robots, control. yeah. The same thing is now happening with delivery drivers, right? Who are te- who are um, measured uh, like machines and they have a certain number of deliveries that they got to do and they can't take a break and so forth. So, so one thing that we're starting to see, I think, is that this focus on automation, um, the way it's changing the jobs for the humans is it's to turn humans into more robotic. Uh, in other words, it's not liberating humans, the human workers, it's actually turning humans into biological robots. In certain situations, I don't think that's the case for a lot of jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's a there's a big issue happening right now in the United States, right? So here in the US, we have, uh, we're on the brink of another supply chain shock but this time it won't be because of the pandemic. It will be because of a railroad strike. Mm-hmm. Now, most people in the United States don't think much about the railroads because we tend to think everything gets delivered by trucks to our stores, particularly those Amazon trucks that are always coming to our houses during the pandemic. But the fact is that the fuel and fuel additives that are essential for those trucks is delivered by rail. And actually most of the raw materials for manufacturing, uh, a great deal of the resources needed for our energy supplies are delivered by rail. Almost all the chemicals that are necessary for manufacturing and um, much of the chemicals that keep our water clean are delivered by rail. Uh, So the United States right now you have um, for the past many years, not just the pandemic preceding the pandemic, Railroads have been increasing the tempo and the pace of work, and they've been doing that in a few ways. One, uh, they've decreased the number of crews, which means that the crews are less staffed. That's a little bit uh, unsafe. That makes it unsafe for the workers sometimes. They don't have redundancy. But the second thing is that they keep the workers, uh, the crews on standby, even on the weekend. So they really have no time to themselves. In some respects, this is similar to the way Walmart has been scheduling uh, their, their workforce as well inside their shops. Uh, forcing them to work nights and weekends and so forth. The, ultimately, there has been a rumbling of a strike for many, many months. And uh, Congress has been able to avert it. The U.S. Uh, Labor Department has been able to avert it. There is a deal on the table, but of the 12 U.S. Union, railroad unions, four of them now have rejected the deal. And it looks like they're poised to go on a strike. And as we record this episode, the U.S. Congress is considering how and when to intervene. Uh, they might force a settlement of some sort onto the railroad workers. If they do not, there will be uh, a strike and that will mean we'll immediately have supply chain shock and that'll affect truck deliveries as well as rail deliveries. What's at issue here is sick days. Uh, the workers are not able to get paid sick leave. And during the pandemic, That's this crazy. is a giant issue. Uh, yeah, it seems almost... almost. I, like I mean, it's, the US is like the only of the G20 countries that has this issue. Right. Sick yes. days in every other nation are paid for. What they're offering is one sick day, one paid sick day. And and uh, and and you can take as many sick days unpaid as you wish. 
but one sick day per year, it seems incredibly cruel. And it's actually kind of astounding that a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president are going to ram this uh, down workers' throats. How do you respond to that when you talk about the future of work? Because this is the this is the present of work in the United States. It's a cruel and harsh situation for laborers. Yes, I think the what we've been dealing with in the, in the U.S. since the 1950s, 1960s, which was sort of the golden era. We had a, a the, the policies, the economic policies then. Really, what they were worried that there was going to be a depression, and so the the boost in the, the economic policies were really created, really really um, uh, enabled an economic boom, which has never been seen since. And and at the time, organizations looked after their employees. That was the deal. You worked hard. You could work long hours. You were able to retire. You had some kind of a, a of a retirement nugget. You had a pension at the end. But you were looked after, and you had some job guarantee. This was a core component to like the great American dream, right? It has been the case in terms of most countries around the world that that's seen as being the sort of the, the social contract. That that's the compensation, the overall compensation. You work, you get something in return. But it had many elements to it, including you know healthcare, pension, all those different elements. Now that has broken down. This social contract has broken down, particularly in this country to speak to over the last decades. And so this is what I see as coming out of the the pandemic where people really looked at work in a very different way and had a sort of some aha moments like, oh, we can work differently, we can live differently, um, and we don't necessarily have to be working every, all weekends. We don't have to be, you know, forced in the office. There were a lot of epiphanies. There was a there was a phrase before the Great Resignation, which was epiphany quitting, um, because people having epiphany about their lives. So I think this idea of the social contract and workers' rights. Now I believe it should be business, you know, what's good for business and what's good for workers. And I do think the future of work has huge promise when it comes to that. But we do need to be really looking at the overall balance between uh, what workers are doing and how they're compensated and how that, and there'll be more of an equilibrium than there has been in the past. Okay, you brought up the great resignation and you've talked about the broken social contract. These are important topics. We're gonna come back to them in the second half of the show. But before we do that, it's time for our lightning round. This oh. is a series of short questions that Brad <laughs> is gonna ask and you're gonna have to respond to, and then we'll take a break. Okay. All right, here we go. So um, what was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to uh, as a child on TV or via books? Um, I'd probably say Star Trek. Uh, but a, the, a movie that I really loved was Tron, which was obviously uh, much yeah, cool. was later on, but Tron. And I actually did go and see the 20th anniversary Tron. re-showing of oh, Tron. Very nice. And what did you think of Legacy, Tron Legacy? I loved it actually, but it, it was good. It was yeah. good. I mean, you know, I was like, my heart was in the was in the original. And what was yes, amazing about when I saw it again was that the computer graphics stayed up, absolutely stood the test of time. But the story was too simple. Yeah, true, true. All right. So, um, what technology do you think has most changed humanity? I think some of the possibilities that we're looking at now in te- terms of the fusion, you know, going to the matrix, for example, what I love is the idea to sort of download or upload or total recall when you can you can be uploading te- 
memory and, and capabilities that I think and and nanotechnologies we can be sending uh you yeah. know microchips down into us to to, to be doing re- repairs and stuff like that I think some of those are some of the most amazing things when we're sort of fusing technology with with humans kind of scary but uh yeah. very interesting yeah cool um uh, you know of course um you know, it, 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 the the concept of being able to edit your memories. Uh, you know, how how will you, how will we be how will we be able to trust our memories in that future? Anyway, um, name a futurist or entrepreneur that has influenced you, and why? Alvin Toffler. Uh, I don't actually even know. Remember who gave me the book? Uh, probably twenty years ago or more. Um, for third wave and future shock. So third wave. If you read third wave, it is amazing. The guy, he wrote it in, uh, he, unfortunately he died sorry, about four years ago now, but he wrote it in 1980, I think. And it talks about exactly where we are now. And it talks about standardization and massification and, and scale and all those things. And he saw that we were going to get down to the, to the you know, look at being able to focus on the consumer one. He talks about flexi time. This is in the 1970s, right, right, right. 1980s. So yeah, yeah. Extraordinary reading that book, and then Future Shock, which is about our human inability to deal with that much change, which is also where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. And the last one: um, What do you think is the best prediction that an entrepreneur, futurist, or science fiction um, brand has ever made about the future? Ooh, um, maybe you could use the Toffler one. You know, with. Well, he, he, I mean, he really does look at, predict so much of, I mean, all the different elements, you know, taking the idea of technology, going from this massification, which needed scale and capital, and then taking everything down to what that means when we can be addressing everything as we are on an individual consumer and an individual employee basis. So that, that I think is is radical in what it uh, he he said, and also how because they're all interrelated, like what that means as a system wide uh, change and transformation that is necessary. That's a yeah. good illustration of a prediction that influenced your future, your own yeah. future. Right. Yeah. So you read about that, and here you are actually working <laughs> on those things. Okay, let's roll up. Uh, let's take a quick break here. Stay tuned, folks. We're going to be back in a minute after a commercial break. Uh, for more with Sophie Wade from Flexel Network and the future of work. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists uh, with your host, Brett, hosts, Brett King and Rob Tursek. Our guest this week is Sophie Wade, who's talking to us about the future of work. But right before that, Rob, take us through the deep dive. Okay, here we go for this week's deep dive. I'm going to talk a little bit about the great resignation. We've all heard this term. Um, actually, it began in China during the pandemic. 
what they call the great lie down in China. And it was actually uh, prohibited to put pictures on, on social media in China of workers lying down in the workplace because it was encouraging people to do this kind of quiet resistance to working hard during the pandemic. Um, here in the United States, the term we use is quiet quitting. That's not really quitting. That's where people show up for work, but they just do what's in their job description and they're just not gonna hustle, do extra work or stay late. Um, but what is, uh, what is the, the core of this concept of great resignation is the fact that 47 million workers quit their jobs in 2021. Uh, that's about um, that's a pretty significant chunk of the workforce. Uh, and that data comes from the U.S. La Department of Labor Statistics. What's more is one in five workers, 20% of the American workforce has indicated that they plan to voluntarily quit their jobs in 2022. And that comes from PwC. Uh, one of the drivers of this is that 54% of the people who work in the United States can work remotely. More than half of the workers in the U.S. can work remotely. And of the people who are quitting, 49% of them are specialized. So there seems to be some evidence here that people with more skills, more training, have more uh, bargaining power. And we're going away from collective bargaining. A moment ago, we were talking about unions. Now we're talking about individuals who see that they've got some skills and they can negotiate a better deal or better terms or better conditions, and they're doing so. Which leads us to the rapid rise in the number of freelancers in the United States. There's a lot of data on this, and it's a very interesting topic to explore. I got data from McKinsey, uh, Upwork, and research by Edelman, um, which tells us that in 2017, there were about 57 million people who were freelance workers. 2017, 57 million. That number increased to 65 million by 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. That was about 36% of the workforce at that time. Today, the figure is over 70 million workers. Now, bear in mind, in the U.S., there's 164 million workers. 70 million of them are freelance. But what's really astounding is that by the end of the decade, as we get to 2028, uh, almost all the research I've seen suggests that there will be 90 million workers who are freelance, self-employed. 90 million workers is more than half the workforce of the United States. So this is a clear trend. Uh, the average pay for these workers is about $28 per hour, which is better than the uh, median income that you can get if you work at, an, at a salaried job. And, um, and it's highly skilled. About 51% of the freelance workers have a post-graduate post degree. Uh, and so that's a pretty significant chunk. More than half of them have a post-graduate degree. And this skews younger. Uh, so 53% of Gen X views freelancing as a long-term career option. Yeah. So to summarize, just to wrap up on that, it's, uh, you know, there's been some doubt whether the great resignation is a thing. You know, some people have written skeptical articles about that. We've heard about it. Uh, but the facts are quite clear. Uh, 47 million resigned in 2021 during the pandemic. One out of five don't want to resign or intend to resign from their jobs today. Uh, that's for a variety of different reasons. Some people are resigning because they're older. Some people are resigning because they need the flexibility. Some people are going out to start their own business. But at the same time, we see this trend towards an increasing number of people who are freelance. And it's really quite, an, a, quite a surprising percentage of American workers, uh, rapidly approaching 50% of the workforce. Sophie, when you hear those figures, what are the things you think of when I say that more than half the workforce is going to be freelance in the future? So I think linking the freelancing and, and the great resignation, for me, the great resignation, the biggest piece of that is a mindset shift about work and the changing attitude to work and what work means and the role yeah, it yeah. has in my life. And so... Uh, you know, in this in the states, people sort of naturally work over the weekends, and that sort of assume that, that that that's something that that can be asked of you without with any without any downside. 
And people are now sort of saying, how can I set up my working life so that I actually enjoy it, but I could actually work for a company that I really like working for, but I could have a bit more space or live in a, you know, tier two, tier three city, whatever. So I think there's a big epiphany about and, and changing that attitude to work. What that also means is what are the employment arrangements that I might want that are going to set me up? And and particularly for the younger workers, Gen Zs and um, millennials too, that the side hustle, like up to 60%, 50, so 59 and 61 of millennials and Gen Zs um, respectively have side hustles. And part of all of that is the not wanting to be reliant on one client, I one employer, because I could be fired at a moment's notice. So this idea is what what gives rise to to freelancers and independent workers, which who basically are defined as as working more than fifteen hours per week freelance, is that I have multiple income sources, and that gives me some kind of financial cushion. So I absolutely see that as rising as a as a response to Gen Z particularly with their anxiety and, and depression because they are so in great uh, in great regard because they are, are concerned about their their income security and so, previously you mentioned the, the the social contract and you mentioned yes. that the social contract has been broken let's be really clear who broke the social contract it's not the workers it's the employer yeah, exactly right? the exactly. employer is yes. now fire people at will they outsource at will they downsize at will they'll shut an entire factory they'll lay off all the workers in an entire community if it's necessary for them to deliver the desired return to their shareholders right. hashtag workers capitalism yeah, so we're hashtag, hashtag shareholder economy. Now we're moving more right, to the stakeholder agree. economy, which is also capitalism. So it, it can is be, the, yeah. there's been a lot of discussion over the last seven years about capitalism 2.0. Adam Smith was designing for developing, you know, his whole thesis was about developing economies. We are now a developed economy, and many, many great brains have been talking about the fact that we need to reformulate capitalism because it doesn't, for a fully developed, right. mature economy, it doesn't actually work so well. Right. And so this, I, this, culture shift is one that um, is not just produced by the pandemic. This would have happened in any case, right? Um, But this sort of leads to the fact that, you know, I I think particularly in the 2030s, and I know we've talked about this on the show previously, Rob, but, you know, I, I do think there's going to be the need for corporations to have a social mission. Right, the, at the heart of what they're doing, rather than just profits and profitability, and I think that's the ultimate extension of this, particularly because of climate change and what we've seen capitalism do in terms, you know, in its current form, in terms of inequality, you know, and and the driver that the markets being that core driver leads to mm-hmm. this big, you know, um, stratification. Uh, of uh, you know the, the the owners versus the workers, right? In terms of um, um, wealth distribution, so I think part part of that underlying element is um, you know yes, people are changing their work habits because they want that freedom, but part of that is pulling back that balance between the rights of the worker or the citizen in the economy versus the mm. rights of corporations. That's how I perceive it. But Yes, and, and corporations, it used to be part of corporations' mandate to look after their employees. And so that's... Right, but that the 1970s is, and 1980s, the, the and attack we can look on to trade, Jack bar- trade unions and, co- you know, and yeah. collective bargaining. Yeah, I mean, the real focus on shareholders and, you know, short-term profits, when you really look to the long-term and what's actually going to be sustainable from a 
business perspective, not even from a climate change, but from a business perspective, is not hiring firing workers. And now you'll see more and more Gen Zs who can like, I don't want to go and work for that company again if it's just going to fire people, you know, ad yeah. hoc, because that is not, that's not going to be okay for me. I'm going to be freaking out and yeah. I won't be able to be comfortable at work. So there is for many different reasons, um, you know, shaken up by the pandemic, but not caused by it, that there is a, a shift in terms of how people are reacting to how they're being yeah. treated. And I mean, that's you know, a, that's an entirely pragmatic response, right? If you're yes, an employer, absolutely. you look at your employer now and you don't trust your employer because they might, they might change the deal tomorrow. You have no exactly. guarantee. So you want to keep a, a second option. That's why people have a side hustle. And as we see in the data, the people with more degrees and more advanced speciality and more skill sets are able to bargain better. They're able to right. bargain for better working conditions, more flexibility, work from home and so forth, or they can hike out and start their Gives own Gives them more control. Yeah. Right. That's right. And that also means that I'm going to really focus on the values of a company that I go and work at because that's going to give me, that's the best that I can the easiest thing for me to focus on in terms of, do I trust that organization? You know, what kind of values do they have? Are they going to be transparent with me? Are they going to help me get a new job? Because there are companies who do that. Uh, and then you also have the, the, the way that we're focusing on skills now because everything's changing so much. That is where it's very interesting for freelancers, independent workers, because they, more than anybody, have a really good handle on what their skills are because that they have to. They have to understand their skills because that's how they get work. So that's, that's going to help that you know, those folks uh, increase their their capabilities and um, value and and contributions in the workforce because they really have a handle on their skills and they understand where this is going and they can sort of fill in the gaps for companies as they're trying to pivot. But it looks like everybody's on that track. It looks like, you know, by the end of this decade, the majority of workers will have to be that capable, you know, of explaining what their skills are, differentiating themselves to employers and signaling that out to the marketplace. Uh, which is really quite an interesting challenge, right? We're going from a situation of job security. You know, when when I was a kid, my parents were like, go get a job at a big company and and get on a career path right, with that right, company, right? right? That, that was the encouragement you got. Today, I don't think anybody thinks that way because no, we don't have I, job I security. wouldn't want that for my kids. <laughs> but those jobs well, don't well, exist. Well, I mean, we have job don't... insecurity, right? That's right. right. Right, absolutely. Uh, so you're on your own and you have to kind of, you know, develop your own defenses, if you will, your own strategy. Exactly. Everybody has to be their own employer. Now, you made some distinctions a moment ago, and I want to really make sure we get them. One is um, there's a difference between the gig economy and a freelancer and an independent worker. Uh, tell me how you uh, parse these distinctions. So, look, these were, these terms are used in very different ways, but the way that I do look at it is, a, is and I think it was done by handygo.com, that gigs are seen as being very short-term, lots and lots of very uh, of very small short-term projects, which is more like sort of a handy.com um, and maybe, maybe, maybe Uber. Uber, yeah. Where you, then you have the 1099 economy, which is more the independent, independent worker. So right, MBO right. Partners defines independent worker as being, or independent contractor as being somebody who works more than 15 hours a week. So that is their main income source because a lot of gig economy is additional to something else. So if mm -hmm. you talk to a lot of Uber drivers, they have some other work and they may be doing that uh, for, for, you know, to pay off a loan or to you know, help their wife through college. That was one that I got re someone recently. Um, so it's additional to, it's not necessarily their main core mm -hmm. work. So the 10, the 1099 economy is really for me, the people who are, who are independent, that's their main source of income because they have a very different profile of their work. 
Now, those workers, uh, they're self-employed, uh, 1099 workers. Yeah. They're vulnerable in another way in the United States, which is that yeah. they bear the burden of their own health care insurance. And yeah. another thing- In, in the US. Right. Another right. thing that makes the United States so very different. There are only- uh, This is a big driver for the the need to change the national health care system. And, it, and, it's astounding and, and retirement. Yes. retirement. Yeah, that's, that's another right. big one. It's astounding to me that the independent workers, the freelance economy, haven't organized into a group. But this is one of the things I find most interesting about DAOs, the decentralized autonomous organizations, is that you mm-hmm. can organize them. It doesn't have to be a company. It doesn't have to be a for-profit enterprise. It can just be a community, but a community with collective bargaining power. Could, I was just could, talking to a group You should do a startup on it, this. bro. <laughs> well, I was just talking to a group in Chicago about this, and it was interesting. One of the representatives there from a major healthcare company came up to me afterwards, and she said, that idea of collective bargaining for freelancers is super important for the future of healthcare. Remember, the reason workers don't leave their jobs, even people who hate their jobs, right, right. they stay because they have the healthcare benefits they need them. In a way, it's a ball and chain that keeps you chained to a desk that yeah. you don't love uh, because we have the lowest labor mobility in the United States of any industrialized country. And it's because we don't have universal healthcare. And yeah. one of the reasons we don't have universal healthcare is because it's a great way for employers to keep people showing up at their jobs. Yes, yes. Right, because it is so expensive and you can get, Obamacare did decouple full-time jobs with healthcare. So it is possible to get it, it's just ridiculously expensive. That's so right. So that was, that was one major step. And, uh, so that, that's one one element of it. You have had the freelancers, you know, for a very, very long time, which was going in the right direction. And um, it just, you know, was, was trying to survive for very, very for, for, for a long time without getting the momentum that it needed. I think now we're in a different, we're in a different situation. Um, and there are lots of complexities with uh working, hiring, uh, to, to do with compliance with, with regard to hiring people, particularly in different states, um, and, and how to process that. So there are, there are companies that are more willing to and less willing to do that, but there are, there are also more solutions to, to, to making sure that they don't step on toes. And there's actually a new law that the Biden administration is putting forward to try and help classify more workers and employees. I actually don't think that's the way to go. I do care about no. workers' rights. Yeah. I don't think it's the way to go because it is, we need, instead of going with the W-2 or the 1099, we need to have something in the middle. And that was so, actually proposed. Uh, Sorry. So, so, Sophie, I do want to jump in here mm-hmm. a little bit. We're being very US-centric right now in, yeah. in yes. respect yeah. to this conversation. So, um, you know, what is driving the trend? Because this is happening as a global thing. It's, yes. You know, um, uh, so w- uh, it's not healthcare that's that's a thing there, but are we seeing consistency uh, uh, around the trends as to why people are leaving or is there there's some, um, you know, or becoming a, a freelancer independent? Is there some... Um, uh, you, you know something unique that is is in other markets compared with the US or is it is it fairly consistent uh the level of the, the numbers of freelancers are lower in other countries you have very much the same trend but at a, at a lower level in the UK in terms of people who who are taking more freelance route and the and the part of that is is because a big part of it is that uh, you know job security has decreased um, significantly there too. It isn't as bad as it is here, um, and there's also the the desire to have something on the side to be pursuing your passion or to be developing other interests and kind of going, okay, well I don't necessarily want to do this for the rest of my life. Let me try something else. You have your side hustle, and then maybe you move on. You take that side hustle, then becomes your main hustle, um, and so there's more of there's a when you take away the the the, the wall 
levels of work and it stops becoming a place, people have a different attitude overall to what work yeah. means and how you're going to do it and mm-hmm. why why only one company and and why not right. be doing two or three things at the same time that's kind of like more fun and more interesting which leads you to this network principle right so there's yes. a notion that's emerging but it's kind of murky that eventually you know, right now we talk about a labor marketplace but give me a break i mean we don't really have a proper marketplace for jobs finding a job is still the most arcane process you submit yes. a resume to some robot that looks at it and if it doesn't have <laughs> keywords you're not even qualified for the for an interview right, right? Um, we don't have a proper marketplace or functioning marketplace, but in a network economy, it should be possible for people yeah. to advertise their micro credentials. There should be a way for our mm-hmm. resumes to be networked, you know, and have robots crawl them and find the people who are qualified without them even looking for a job. And you're right. The definition of a job, the boundaries around work are getting porous such yes. that people can have multiple roles in multiple organizations. And again, I keep referring to DAOs because that's my current you know, yes. pet interest. But I think that where we're heading is these flexible organizations that people opt into, contribute to, but they don't feel like they're committed yeah. to entire life. They're certainly and, and not committed to them. Th- this, I think, is important um, because it's not just if we if we're going to now look 20 or 30 years in the future in terms of future work, um, you're going to have two sort of simultaneously quite interesting issues that really change the way we think about the nature of work. The first is AI, which is going to lead to large-scale uh, techno unemployment and um, because we are attacking the process of human learning and human work itself. We've got the first technology allows to take essentially any job that you can teach a human to do and now teach it to an AI, which um, it, we've never had disruption at that level in terms of employment. Like, you know, everyone talks about the internet, but it created more jobs than it destroyed, but we don't, you know, we've never had a technology that can simultaneously disrupt every industry at the same time. So there's that, which then leads to a very real question. If we're giving people UBI because of now, um, you know, the the effects of technology unemployment, um, then what do you do for work when, because we all agree that work is a core element of passion of you know, our human life and it, and it adds value in that sense. But if you no longer have to work to put food on the table um, and then get healthcare, as an example, then how does that change the nature of work itself, do you think, Sophie? Well, I think, first of all, we have to move on from the fact that work, the the Calvinist you know, doctrines were that you, in order to go to heaven, you have, you have to suffer in your work and that's going to take you to heaven. I think we can move away from that because that was where that came from. And so if we can, first of all, say we can enjoy our work, that changes a lot of dynamics about how engaged people are and, and how sort of we have a different setup for sort of integrating our working lives. Um, and the, the the that goes together with the UBI in terms of why there's been so much resistance to it. It's kind of like, well, people have to work to, i.e., to right, be good right, people. Right. You know, that is a is a necessary for for someone to, in our in our um, society. But if we can change that premise, then we can look at UBI in in very different ways. And there are have been many examples around the world which have shown that people want to work. They want well, to they work. start people on UBI start their own businesses at like three times the rate of the normal population, right? Right. And they're they're contributing. They want to be involved. They want to be creating value. So what so how we have defined and look at work is 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 changing in a in extraordinary ways. And I think very, very uh in very positive ways. Because you talked about work passion, you know, work and passion being a core value of work. There, there are lots of people who 
do not have any passion for their work. They're doing horrible jobs, um, mm-hmm. which are, you know, exhausting. And if we can shift those people to be doing different things and, you know, have have more, there be more entertainment. I mean, the the construct of a 40-hour work week, you know, it used to be six, seven, seven days a week, 18 hours a day. 40 hours of work work a week was a, it was Robert Owen. It was 1817. He was a Welsh utopian who came up with this idea of eight hours of work, eight hours of leisure, eight hours of rest. That's it. And it was like, you know, the best marketing slogan ever (laughs) at that point went around the world like, well, it's completely arbitrary. So yeah, yeah. Four, four day work weeks, whatever, whatever. Uh, I definitely think is. the four day work week is. Yeah, but it may not work be. for some companies because they have to be running the machines or whatever it might be. So if we can actually just view design work that's right for us, think about it. We don't have to be working five days a week because otherwise we're not good people. Um, but really sort of work out what's right for my family, for what I want to do, for how I want to provide value. Okay. Okay. I hear you. And <laughs> I love the optimism, but but now I have to play the role of the skeptic here. So let me okay. players a little bit because I think um, there is a big disparity in our workforce in the kinds of jobs that are available. And it breaks down like this. 54% can work remotely. And that's the people you've been talking about. These are people that have the flexibility to design when and where and how they work, whether they do it at home or some other third place or at the office. But there's that other group that's the minority, the forty, the forty-eight percent or forty-six percent that have to show up, and where they show up is in factories, warehouses, trucking, shipping, logistics, and retail. Mm-hmm. And many of these jobs are tedious. They're brutal. They're monotonous. They require focus. They require human attention. They require actually a fair degree of skill. Uh, they're not easy to automate. In other words, if they could have been automated, they would have been right. The, the, the checkout clerk at the at the Home Depot. Okay, that job's been automated away. Now you scan your own goods. Basically, you work for Home Depot when you're a customer because you do the task of scanning the, at the checkout yourself. Although that job doesn't come with any benefits or pay, it's just something we do now to shop at Home Depot and any kind of other store like that. The big box store. Unless you're an Amazon Go. Which you just walk in, get the stuff and walk out. And walk out, right. Yeah, sure. If that works, we'll see how far Amazon gets with that. So the question is, what about that group? What about that group? Because there are certainly going to be jobs where things have to be lifted and moved and sorted and packed and delivered and shipped and picked and packed and so forth. Those jobs aren't going to go away. And it's not likely that we're going to have robotics replaced at any time soon, just because the actuators aren't that accurate. You can't pick a grape with a robot right now. So there's a lot of stuff that we can do to be investing in changing the and and updating and upgrading and improving the processes, which is where the where, where the investment has not been focused. And talking to the frontline workers and changing what they're doing. There's a really interesting company um, called. Trulia, I think, um, that is doing that. And they, they're sort of developing these screens so that somebody who is working on, you know, uh, catalytic converters has a screen that they, he can, has a touch screen that he can actually manipulate and look right. and look the, inside. The augmented reality. Uh, exactly. Uh, augmented augmented, augmented yeah. workforce. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that there are lots of things that we can do to change the reality and the experience for people on the front line. There's also a lot of work. There's a guy called Maver- um, uh, Ricardo Semler. There's a book from the 1980s. He took over his his uh, father's conglomerate at 21 and tried everything under the sun. And it was a huge manufacturing firm in Brazil. 
And he basically said, okay, for the production workers, like you set your quota and then you get it done however you want. And they cha- they shared jobs. They changed their schedule. They worked when they when they wanted to work. And they even, you know, they they sort of down they took their salaries down rather than rather than firing people because they were given that freedom to do that. There's an incredible amount of autonomy that that uh people on the shop floor can be given that can really change the experience for them in a very positive way and still be very good for business. Yeah, and another cool. another thinking outside the box, for example, there's some retailers who are now sort of saying, well, hang a second, if four days a week you have to be in the store, the fifth day you could be working from home doing customer service. Right. Like let's share jobs, let's think about things differently and people can have different experiences. Yeah. They can have they can have a different experience like the admin part of their job or like a customer service part of the job. They can be given some of that. So there are lots of things. If we start thinking outside the box, we can really change the dynamic for everybody. Okay. Well, we do need to wrap up, I'm afraid, <laughs> Sophie, because uh, we are getting up on time. Um, but I do have one last question for you before we, uh, we wrap up. And this gets back to our core mission of of the futurists, right? Mm-hmm. Which is let's think big, yep. you know, 30, 50 years out. What do you think will be the, or, or what are you most excited about in terms of this future that's emerging? So what I, I would say two things. One, what I'm most excited about is I really do, you know, Rob was kind of teasing me in terms of like, okay, you know, but you, that's a very positive view. I am truly excited about the possible, the, the, where we're, where we're going, which is thinking about e- each worker individually and helping them do their best work, which means aligning them to their skills and strengths and what they enjoyed, what they enjoy doing because they're going to do that the best and adapting to preferences and being able to integrate your life so that it all works better and you actually have a positive experience. That's fantastic. There's other, the, there's a lot of, messiness, I would say, between now and, you know, 20 years out, because the other thing that I do really see, which is part of this trend towards um, the extended talent pool, which is companies having a smaller core full-time uh, worker workforce because of technology, because of it, companies needing to pivot a lot. And rather than hire and fire and hire and fire, having a core group that then there's a much, uh, a sort of a familiar talent pool that they use a lot. So they're giving them lots of regular work, but they're not employees. Now that, if we can give the support and really increase the, whether it's the, you know, pensions and healthcare and, you know, other things that are going to support and help work freelance workers and independent contractors get mortgages yeah. and those type of things so these those are some yeah. of like the basic things well, well you know we, we need to yeah we need to fix yeah. that Sorry. the risk so the risk parameters all of that absolutely all right well, that's great that's really positive thank you for uh, your input on that how do people um get in touch with you and keep following you know what you're doing so LinkedIn is a good place. I do post a lot. I'm still doing on on Twitter, a Sophie Wade, and also my website, which is sophiewade.com. And if you're more interested about the future of work, then Transforming Work is my podcast. Awesome. Well, uh, news just broke, Rob, um, while yeah. we're recording this, that it, the, the the legislation to break the rail strike is expected to be um, to be pr- proceed tomorrow, and it will guarantee seven paid six sick days per year for the rail workers. Oh, so, um, how about that? So the so issue has been resolved. That's been now. that's been it. So um, so we'll see how that ends up. But uh, I noticed I noticed that BlockFi has joined uh, has joined FTX as exactly. now declaring bankruptcy while we're yes. recording this. So just to put a button on those two stories that we started with earlier. <laughs> Yeah. in the show 
Sophie, it's always a pleasure to see you. I'm so thrilled that you are continuing to think creatively about the future of work and, and think about empathy in the workplace, such a missing ingredient in mm. almost every workplace. Uh, <laughs> super to hear from you again. Thanks for joining us on The Futurists. Thanks so much for having me, Rob right? and, uh, and Brad. Really appreciate it. So that's it for this week on The Futurist. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to give us a shout out on social media or tell your friends about it. Uh, you know, give, leave us with a review on your choice of uh, where you where you listen to The Futurist um, and just generally help people, help help us to, to, to uh, get people to find the show. We appreciate that. Um, but that's it for this week. Um, certainly we will be back next week where we'll see you in the future. In the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.